I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jason Plouts. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 11th, 2019. Coming up, we'll discuss something that is essential to life, and it's also killing many people. That is, the air we breathe, especially the public health impacts of and solutions to air pollution. Our guests are Beth Gardner, a journalist and author of the newly published book, Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution, and Dr. Frank Flock, an atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So before we dive into the interview, I want to introduce my guest co-host, Jason Plouts. He's an independent journalist based in Denver who's been covering environmental issues, including environmental and politics, for many years. He's, his writing has appeared in Science, High Country News, National Journal, Reveal, and several other publications. For a feature article he co-wrote with Dan Glick on the fracking explosion in Windsor, Colorado in 2017, he received a 2019 Thomas L. Stokes Award from the National Press Foundation. I interviewed Jason on the show last December after that article was published in High Country News. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Great. Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here. Uh, We'll skip headlines today since we have two guests with us to discuss such a sweeping topic, but we can't miss stating one important item on the science anniversary calendar. On this day, 99 years ago in 1910, the French oceanographer, explorer, and inventor Jacques Cousteau was born. He died in 1997 at age 87. Through his photography and films, he opened many of our eyes to the beauty and mysteries lying deep beneath the ocean's surface, and to the threats the ocean and and its inhabitants face from overfishing and pollution. In fact, Cousteau pioneered marine conservation. He was surely remembered last Saturday, June 8th, which was World Oceans Day. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Jason Plouts. And I'm Susan Moran. So here's something you might not think about every time you take a breath, but it's obvious, right? Air. We cannot live without it. Yet the sad fact is that air, that is polluted air, is killing millions of people every year. Air pollution ranks as one of the biggest causes of death among health risks beyond, er, behind diet, cancer, and tobacco. Many cities are choking from pollution. Beijing, New Delhi, London, and Denver isn't faring so well either. Yet many countries and cities have taken positive steps that have dramatically reduced emissions from vehicles, smokestacks, crop and animal production, and other sources. Our two guests today have been researching air pollution, its sources, its impacts, and the solutions. Beth Gardner is an environmental journalist based in London. Her newly published book is called Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. She joins us via phone. Welcome to the show, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me on. And our second guest is Dr. Frank Flock. He's an atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research here in Boulder. And he joins us right in the studio. Thanks so much, Frank. Good morning. So I want to jump right in, Beth, with you. You've been covering environmental issues for many years. Uh, What drew drew you to write this whole book about air pollution around the world and the human health effects? And it seems like there's a personal connection for you living in London, as you have been for many years. Yeah, it really did come 
come out of my personal experience here, fortunately not in the sense of having had any, um, you know, health problems myself or in my family, but um, it, London does have a, a very significant air quality problem, and it's really part of a much wider European problem. Um, and I, you know, sort of always was aware of it in London just in the sense that you can smell it and, and feel it, the thickness of these diesel fumes out on the streets. But for many years back in the early 2000s, it didn't really seem to be something that anyone was particularly talking about or that was on the radar screen of, of the media or of politics at all. Wait, even in and the uh, early one, 2000s, you're saying people weren't really yeah, talking and about then it? One, one day a few years ago, I, w- I was working on a story to do with the 2012 Olympics, and I sat down for a few minutes to Google the science of air pollution and what it does to our bodies and what the levels are, are like here in London. And it was really very alarming because what I learned and what you would learn if you, if you did that is that air pollution is, is linked to really a very long and shocking list of, <clears throat> of health problems from heart attacks and strokes to premature birth and dementia all the way up to early death, the biggest health problem there is. So from a journalistic perspective, I felt like that was a really big story that wasn't being adequately covered. So it started here in London, and then I began following it all around the world, really. Uh, Beth, a lot of the areas you read about in your book, uh, you mentioned London being able to smell and feel the pollution. Uh, Beijing and New Delhi have pollution problems so bad it's visible and keeps people off the streets. With very few exceptions, it's not really that bad in the U.S. Uh, What should listeners here be worried about? place in the developing world of Beijing or in India, and even compared to Western Europe, the U.S. has has really done pretty well on air quality, and that's thanks to um, our very strong Clean Air Act of 1970 and the Environmental Protection Agency's success in enforcing the regulations under that law. Um, But nonetheless, um, air pollution still kills 100,000 Americans every year. Um, that's the, the latest and strongest scientific estimate. So that's a lot of people, and unfortunately, as our air has improved over the past five decades, since 1970, the science has been moving forward, to, and what scientists have learned is that even levels that would once have been considered safe still do real harm and indeed are still killing many people. So I want to turn to uh, Frank Flock of NCART, and we'll get back to the Clean Air Act and some of the policies in the U.S., what's working, what's not. But, Frank, here you are right smack on the front range at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And here we are entering summer season, which means Denver will be experiencing pretty high ozone levels. And I think just last week, weren't there a couple action days with unsafe levels for certain populations? But I want you to walk us through what is what forms ozone and why is it more prevalent in the summer? And obviously it's not just summer that we're worried about. Yeah, so ozone uh, is a what we call a secondary pollutant. Um, it's formed uh, as a result of anthropogenic and also biogenic emissions that are going into the atmosphere that are reacting together in the presence of sunlight, specifically hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxides. Um, hydrocarbons have a variety of sources, uh, fuels, um, transportation, uh, oil and gas extraction, but also vegetation. Uh, nitrogen oxides are typically um, come from any sort of combustion processes, um, which are mostly anthropogenic. 
there came forest fires, uh, you know, sometimes natural. There's a large source of those, but uh, but typically in in urban settings, uh, they they are typically anthropogenic. Uh, and then in the presence of sunlight, they can form ozone. Uh, and uh, the ozone formation um, depends, you know, a little bit on meteorology. It depends on how much sunlight there is. depends on, uh, you know, how many clouds you have, whether your storms come through or not. And, and, and Denver is, is very well set up in the summer because we often have very, very cloudless days. We have, you know, it's a sunshine and, and good weather. So uh, even though, say, we have a lot of sunshine in the winter, is it that it's not that it's not as warm, but it's that it's cloudier? Um, the, in the winter, the sun is lower in the sky, uh, and therefore the amount of uh, uh, ultraviolet sunlight, which is you know, the, kind of the shorter end of the sunlight, the shorter wavelength end of the sunlight, is what's photochemically most active. And that in the winter is limited uh, because of the, uh, the low sun angle. Um, so it's a little complicated, but there's, there's more um, um, energy available in the winter. Also, the, the, the days are longer in the summer, so uh, that's, that's another uh, part of uh, that why, why uh, summertime ozone is, is more of a problem than wintertime. Wintertime ozone can be a problem as well. There are some famous examples in Wyoming and some of the oil and gas areas and also in Utah um, that uh, they have very high ozone in the winter, and that comes from reflection of sunlight from snowpack. Uh, and oh, uh, trapping, trapping of pollution in valleys because of the cold air sitting there and then uh, just being, being, you know, cooked for, for days and days, and, and that can cause very high ozone. And we see that inversion well. here a lot on the front range. Um, yeah, you see that it can happen here. So uh, I'm curious, also, uh, specifically on the front range, like roughly what percent of a contribution is from the oil and gas so, industry? So, so we did a... Um, a very extensive uh, aircraft study in 2014. Um, uh, the uh, the NCAR portion of that study was called Frappe, the Front Range Air Pollution and Photochemistry Experiment. Sounds like a tasty drink. Frappe. Uh, sounds like a tasty drink. <laughs> you can look it up um, by that same spelling. And and we were joined by uh, by NASA for this experiment. They they did their fourth uh, uh, campaign for the Discover AQ. Uh, it's a it's a air very quality. complicated acronym. It's an air quality study mm -hmm. that was done in four different places in the U.S. and the fourth place was uh, was Denver, um, and so we had uh, we had a, a very very large number of resources uh, deployed uh, that summer and uh, for about four to five weeks, um, and uh, our goal was to find out uh, the the individual contributions of large pollution sectors uh, to the ozone problem in Denver. And what we found is that the the excess ozone that's being formed uh, in, in in our area here. Um, about 35% or so of that is attributable to transportation and traffic. Another 35% or so, and that varies, that's an average number for this period, um, is caused by, by oil and gas operations. And, and this also varies by location. If you're in Fort Collins, you probably have more likely oil and gas um, uh, influence because there, you know, there's just less traffic there and more oil and gas right adjacent mm -hmm. to it. Because most, most of our most of our our extraction operations are in Weld County in the northeastern part of the uh, uh, metro area, uh, and in in downtown Denver and around Denver uh, where where there's more traffic, uh, the, you know, the traffic impact is a little bit higher. And then the rest of those uh, uh, contributions are coming from power plants and, you know, smaller sectors like there's biogenic emissions that contribute a little bit. Um, and uh, but those are the two main two main sectors that, that cause the uh, the ozone problem mm -hmm. here. Uh, Frank, you you describe this as excess ozone. That's Does right. that mean there's just 
ozone in the air? That's correct. Um, so the, the northern hemisphere um, uh, ozone background has been increasing, um, you know, essentially since the industrialization. Um, you know, once, once humans started putting pollution into the air, uh, we have started uh, to, uh, to increase the background. We call it the background ozone. This is the, the summertime ozone that's in the northern hemisphere. Uh, and th those numbers vary a little bit. They are somewhere around 40 ppb parts per billion. Um, and uh, the, you know, just to, to compare this, the ozone standard is 70. So we, we only really have 30 to work with in most places in the northern hemisphere. That you know, is As soon as we make an 30 ppb additional ozone, uh, we are getting into the territory where, where, we, where we violate the standards. And here in the west, in the, in the western United States, uh, the background ozone is a little bit higher than, than the average in the northern hemisphere. The northern hemisphere includes all the oceans and everything, right? So if you are, the, if you are in California on the coast, you might see something like 35 to 40 parts per billion. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are sitting on top of Mount Evans, you will probably see more 50 to 55 parts per billion. And that's because the general enhancement from the western U.S. that is upwind of us uh, already adds a little bit to that. So that shrinks the... The uh, uh, you know the the buffer that we have to work with uh, you know before we violate standards. I see. Um, so Frank, just just give us the the bottom line based on the work that you did um, through Frappe. How bad is the ozone here on the Front Range? Well, it's uh, you know I wouldn't call it horrible. Uh, I have uh, you know we have done studies in Houston, Texas in 2000 where uh, ozone was 300 parts per billion in some places. Wow. Uh, so, so you know, I would uh, respectfully disagree that that the uh, Clean Air Act was, uh, you know, solving all the air quality problems in the U.S. It was far from that. And there's, uh, I mean, we, we the study was done with with our colleagues at NOAA, and you know, NOAA was leading that study, and, and I was part of it. And uh, we, um, the, the study was repeated in 2006. Uh, and, and a lot of progress was made um, as a result of uh, uh, the, the awareness that was created through, through that study. It was it's called the Tex, Texas Air Quality Study, mm -hmm. TEXAQS. Mm -hmm. um, there were two of them uh, organized here by CSD here in, in town, you know, our friends at NOAA, which are, you know, this is a kind of an air quality related, uh, uh, very, very active uh, uh, research going on in this, in this city. As far yeah, as so I, right. I want to um, come back some yeah, what, in, a yeah. bit after the break, probably to um, some more of the policy uh -huh. in the Clean Air Act. Yeah. Beth Gardner, so, I want to bring you back in in, in a yeah. sec, though. So, and, so I, I, would, okay, Frank, I, I would say that the, the, you know, we, the ozone problem in Denver has gotten worse in the last, you know, at least stagnated. It hasn't gotten better. Uh, it was really bad in the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, then there was a period of decline, and now it's at least flattening out, if not increasing a little bit. And that's probably a result of the increasing population density here and the uh, ex you know increased oil and gas extraction activities in our area. They will both contribute to that. Interesting. So, Beth Gardner, I want to turn to you. And you write about that air pollution is not just broadly speaking, a health hazard, but that it also, in certain areas, affects the poor especially, particularly those who might live near freeways or those who are burning dung and wood to cook. So give us an example of how this is playing out and where, maybe an example or two, whether it's Los Angeles or India. Sure, yeah, so very much so. I mean, I, I what I found really not just in America but all around the world is that the impact of air pollution really tracks all of the existing 
fractures and fissures in our societies. And the impact is very disproportionate along both uh, racial lines and economic lines. Um, you know, I, I, the way that I put it in the book is that it, it's both, and that air pollution, you know, at the same time affects everyone who breathes it, but it affects some more than others. So in, in big cities, you know, it, it, it can sort of fall along the lines of real estate prices. You know, if you um, can't afford to live further away from a, a, you know, really busy freeway or a, um, you know, polluting factory or a power plant, obviously those tend to be sort of cheaper places to live, um, and they, they tend to be much more polluted. Um, I saw in uh, Los Angeles where I, I spent some time reporting, and then I have a chapter from there, uh, just south of the city where Long Beach is, two big ports, the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach, um, both are very, very highly polluting, not just the ships that spew out this really, um, you know, terrible um, fumes, but also all the trucks and the um, freight equipment and everything that's drawn to a port. Those areas, those neighborhoods are some of the, the um most polluted in, in all of the Southern Californian region. And they, you know, often in many places, particularly near the ports and near the freeways, are home to poor people, to new immigrants, um, oftentimes undocumented. Um, and those are neighborhoods that are really struggling. Um, so, you know, um, as I said, at the same time, you see air pollution affecting everybody in a region. But really the burden falls even more heavily and more disproportionately mm -hmm. on the poor and on communities of color. And Beth, give us a sense of what those health effects are. I think one thing your book does is chronicle the research that shows the effects aren't just felt in the heart and the lungs. It could be every organ in the body. What did you find in your research? Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, as the science has advanced, which it's been doing very rapidly over the last 15 years or so, it just sort of seems like with every new study, there's another illness that's potentially linked to air pollution. So I was pretty ready to believe when I started researching this. You know, I think we would we would all be pretty um, ready to intuitively accept that dirty air is going to trigger asthma attacks or cause breathing problems or even maybe lung cancer. Um, but um, you know, as you said, heart attacks and strokes are very strongly linked. What I found sort of most um, chilling, I guess, is the cognitive impacts. Um, there are some very disturbing studies linking um, dirty air to increased rates of dementia, of Alzheimer's disease. There was a, a really sort of um, vivid and scary study that was done in Mexico City a number of years ago where neuropathologists examined the brains of, of puppies who lived there and found the same markers in their brains that are used to diagnose Alzheimer's in humans, um, twisted proteins and plaques and degenerating neurons. Um, you know, so there's some real alarm bells there. And most recently, um, there's new evidence linking um, problems like obesity and diabetes and even um, various kinds of mental illnesses to air pollution. So, I mean, actually, it's shocking. But at the same time, I think when you think about, you know, how fundamental air and breathing is to our lives, in a sense, it actually really shouldn't be shocking that the air that we're taking in is really touching every part of our bodies. And um, Frank Flock, um, give us your own sense of uh, sort of where the science is right now. You know, what do you think we've learned about the health effects of air pollution, and what do we still need to learn? 
epidemiological studies uh, of this sort are, are notoriously difficult, and 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 it takes it takes typically a very very long time to get solid results. Um, how how long are we talking? Uh, 30, 40 years. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you, I mean, this is to to really tease out a causal uh, uh, cause and effect. Uh, it, it's very hard because you cities. You know, you have, for example, I give you an example. You, if somebody lives in a city next to a highway, uh, they will breathe the emissions that are coming from the highway, but they also have to listen to the noise 24/7. They will not sleep well. Uh, you know, there they, they are all these side effects that are uh, so these cohorts, you know, things that, that happen uh, when people live in certain places. Um, there, there are a number of effects that will need to be taken into account. So it's very hard uh, over a long period of time, time to do this. Uh, there, there has been a lot of research, uh, especially lately, coming uh, out of Asia. Um, and um, it is, I would, I, would, I would agree with Beth that it's certainly alarming. Uh, some of those links that are being teased out, but uh, but I wouldn't say that uh, the science is is super solid there. Uh, you know, it, certainly, um, you know, for, from from my point of view, uh, if there is a way to reduce air pollution, it should be reduced, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that we have uh, lots of tools available to do this, and and uh, you know, we could do a lot more than what we are actually doing. Uh, you know, and and uh, you know, having said that. Uh, developing countries could do what we did uh, and and address this problem much quicker. Uh, but there's always the economy. <laughs> yeah, right. So for those who may be joining us late, you're listening to KGNU Community Radio in Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, and of course anywhere around the world, kgnu.org. And uh, our guests are Dr. Frank Flock, an atmospheric scientist at NCAR, and Beth Gardner. She's an environmental journalist based in London, and her newly published book is called Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. I want to ask you, Beth, because you've got a whole chapter on the Clean Air Act and how, relatively speaking, effective it was. Granted, that was way back when in a pretty bipartisan world. What are some of the most positive effects and a lesson or two learned for a not-so-bipartisan world we live in today? Yeah, it is quite astonishing um, from today's vantage point to look back on 1970 when this bill was passed and to know that it, it was approved unanimously by the Senate. It got one no vote in the House of Representatives. I mean, I don't think that you or I could uh, imagine even the most innocuous bill that would draw that sort of support from both sides of the aisle today, let alone a law like this that really gave far-reaching new powers of regulation to the federal government. Um, you know, so so in that sense, it, it really does um, sort of show you how, how much American politics has changed. But in terms of the impact of this law, I mean, it, it's really hard to overstate how significant it's been. And I think it's, um, you know, for all of that, is a little bit undersung. I, I certainly see it as one of the most consequential laws in modern American history. Um, you know, imperfect, certainly, and with a lot of work still to do. But the, the improvement in American air quality that this law from 1970 brought about, literally, um, you know, according to official studies that have been done by the EPA, has saved millions of American lives since 1970. And by the way, trillions of dollars. I think what surprised me the most was that the costs um, were 
so dramatically outweighed by the benefits when the official analysis been, analysis has been done. Literally, the the Clean Air Act and the air quality improvement it's brought has delivered benefits that, just in dollar terms, have been worth dozens of times the cost. I think that when new environmental regulation is being discussed, we we tend to hear so much about the the economic burden that it's going to bring, but we don't think about as much about the benefit, even just in dollar terms, not only uh, the lives and health saved, um, but, but the, the economic benefits are absolutely tremendous, but they sort of tend to you hear a little bit less about them than the cost. Right. And here in Colorado, we've seen some significant legislation uh, in the past six months or so focusing directly on clean air. Uh, There was the oil and gas um, regulations, uh, new um, climate plan, incentives for electric vehicles and clean energy. Frank, we have about less than a minute left. Give us a sense. How effective are these new policies going to be? Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, I think I think this is really something we'll see. Uh, you know how well it will work. I think uh, they are well they are well meaning. They are they are good policies. Um, the uh, the the oil and gas bill strikes me as a little bit vague, uh, as there aren't really direct actions in there. It's just kind of like well, we we are going to try and put the the health of of our population first, and and I think that's that's wonderful. Um, uh, and, and we'll see where this goes. Uh, you know, I think uh, electric vehicle standards uh, and, and electric vehicle incentives are something that, that would be working extremely well. Um, you know, stopping subsidies for, for the uh, uh, fossil fuel industry would help a lot also. It's never talked about. So, I'm, you know, I'm obviously a little bit disappointed when I, when I see these things. And, uh, you know, they're well-meaning, they might be good policies, but, but the, the heart of the matter is nev- never addressed. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and maybe Beth would agree with me on that one. Uh, uh, there's certainly always more that can be done. Yeah, you know, we've, we've seen great improvements, but there's so much further still to go on improving our air quality. Well, we've got to end the show now. Beth Gardner, thank you so much for joining us from London. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Frank Flock, thank you for joining us here in the studio for How on Earth. Thanks for having me. That was uh, Beth Gardner, an environmental journalist, author of the new book, Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. And Dr. Frank Flock, an atmospheric scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. We'll link to Beth's book and Frank's research on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Brad Good Quintet. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jason Plouts.